Hello, welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast produced by the Heart Failure Society of America. Heart Failure Beat is designed specifically for clinicians who treat heart failure patients in the United States of America and around the world. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Priya Mapathy, an assistant professor of medicine and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And my name is Dr. Michael Beasley, assistant professor of medicine and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now let's get to our episode. Well, hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us again. We're really excited to bring another episode to you this month. On this month's episode on heart failure rounds, I'll be looking at a new scientific statement that looks at the use of natriuretic peptides. Priya, what else do we have coming up? Well, we're really lucky today to be joined by the amazing Nazreen Ibrahim, who is the founder and executive director of the nonprofit, the Equity and Heart Transplant Project. And to close out the episode, I'm going to be looking at new exciting data, and especially one, especially new and exciting study from the Therapeutics and Heart Failure Conference at the end of March. Well, that sounds really cool. Well, why don't we get started? Sounds great. Let's dive in. Hello, and welcome to this month's Heart Failure Rounds. I am Dr. Michael Beasley. This month, we will be reviewing a paper that is in press at the Journal of Cardiac Failure. The title of the paper is Natriuretic Peptides, Role in the Diagnosis and Management of Heart Failure, a Statement of the Heart Failure Association of the European Society of Cardiology, Heart Failure Society of America, and Japanese Heart Failure Society. The first author on this paper is Dr. Hiroyuki Sutsui, who comes from the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine, Graduate School of Medical Sciences at Kyushu University in Fukuoka, Japan. This scientific statement is divided into four sections. The first is history and basic research. The second is diagnostic and prognostic biomarker use. The third is therapeutic use. And lastly, gaps in knowledge and future directions. I will briefly provide some highlights from these sections. Natriuretic peptides are useful to establish the presence and severity of heart failure and can support a diagnosis of heart failure. We know that higher levels of BNP and NT pro and BNP are associated with a greater risk for adverse short and long-term outcomes in patients with heart failure. However, one thing to keep in mind in regard to BNP and NT pro BNP is that they do have some differences in that BNP, but not NT pro BNP, is a substrate for neprilysin. Therefore, when using an angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor, the BNP levels will rise as a result, as a direct result of the use of that drug, but that would not be the case with NT pro BNP levels. While this document does review other types of natriuretic peptides, I have chosen to focus just on BNP and NT pro BNP, as these are the natriuretic peptides that we are most familiar with in our care of heart failure patients. Guidelines issued by all three of the professional societies that worked on this scientific statement, the 2022 HA-ACC-HFSA guideline for heart failure management, the 2021 ESC guideline, and the 2017 Japanese society guidelines, all have strong recommendations uh, stating that the use of natriuretic peptides is recommended for the initial diagnosis of heart failure. With that, we'll move into the first subsection, history and basic research. Natriuretic peptides are cardiac hormones that bind to guanylyl cyclase A. We know that B-type natriuretic peptides are mainly synthesized in the ventricles. Natriuretic peptides act as circulating hormones in the body and have paracrine factors in the heart. 
Through guanylyl cyclase A, the biological actions of natriuretic peptides are diuresis and naturesis, vasodilation, inhibition of aldosterone secretion, inhibition of myocyte hypertrophy and fibrosis, and inhibition of smooth muscle cell proliferation. This suggests that natriuretic peptides play key roles in heart failure, counteracting the effects of overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, and arginine-vasopressin system. Therefore, in the early stages of heart failure, natriuretic peptides play a beneficial role in maintaining overall homeostasis. However, with progressive deterioration of cardiac function, natriuretic peptides appear to lose efficiency in doing so. The next section is diagnostic and prognostic implications. Natriuretic peptides play a central role in both the diagnosis of heart failure as well as in the accurate assessment of short and long-term prognosis. In acute heart failure, the authors recommend that natriuretic peptides should be measured in all patients presenting with symptoms suggestive of new onset or worsening heart failure. So these symptoms could include dyspnea or fatigue, and the lack of a rise in natriuretic peptide levels can effectively exclude a diagnosis of heart failure as they have a very high negative predictive value. Toward the end of a hospitalization for heart failure, the measurement of natriuretic peptide levels could be considered when a patient has been determined to be optivolemic, as this allows for a baseline to be measured for continued longitudinal monitoring. Additionally, it can allow for individualized decision-making on the timing, frequency, and intensity of follow-up, as heart failure patients with higher or non-falling concentrations of natriuretic peptide levels may merit closer follow-up and including closer follow-up and monitoring at home following hospital discharge. It is also important to note that a persistently elevated natriuretic peptide level following effective diuresis in a clinically stable patient may actually be the patient's optivolemic or dry natriuretic peptide level at that time point. Reasons for which the natriuretic peptide level may remain elevated despite the lack of congestion includes persistently increased ventricular wall stress, that which would be necessary to maintain cardiac output in a failing heart. A persistently elevated uh, natriuretic peptide level in these cases is indicative of high-risk patients with poor prognosis. On the other hand, there are patients with unexpectedly low natriuretic peptide levels as well, and these patients tend to be those with high BMI or preserved ejection fraction. Thresholds used to denote congestion consistent with acute heart failure in the appropriate clinical context would include a BNP level of greater than 100 picograms per milliliter, or an NT proBNP level greater than 300 picograms per milliliter. The authors also talk about the use of natriuretic peptides in the management of patients with chronic heart failure. They acknowledge that natriuretic peptide levels are generally lower in ambulatory patients, but the natriuretic peptide level may still be important in establishing prognosis for the patient with chronic heart failure in the ambulatory setting. As natriuretic peptide levels have proven to be among the strongest single predictors of prognosis in patients with chronic heart failure. Additionally, in patients who are at risk for the development of heart failure, so your ACC, AHA, stage A or B patients, natriuretic peptide levels also predict the risk of an incident heart failure episode. The next section summarized will be therapeutic use of natriuretic peptides. And while the authors discuss 
this in regard to different types of medical therapies. I have chosen to focus just on angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibition. Angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors, or ARNIs, have a unique effect of neprilysin inhibition, and this is what makes them different from ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers. Through neprilysin inhibition, there is a mechanism which blocks the degradation of natriuretic peptides, resulting in vasodilation, naturesis, as well as antifibrotic and antihypertrophic effects. The neprilysin inhibitor will lead to an improvement in cardiac function and reduced myocardial wall stress so that the synthesis of pronatriuretic peptides is decreased. Plasma NT pro BMP levels were reduced by approximately 30% from baseline after treatment with ARNIs in randomized trials, where ARNIs were compared with ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers and patients with either chronic heart failure or stabilized after an episode of acute heart failure, or in those with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. There is a high prognostic value of plasma natriuretic peptide levels in patients with heart failure treated with ARNIs. The relationship between the decrease in plasma natriuretic peptide levels, reverse cardiac remodeling, and better outcomes finds its best support in data with angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibition. And the final section discussed is gaps in knowledge and future directions, which is broken into three parts. One, mechanistic insights. Two, implications for the therapeutic approach. And three, understanding the role of natriuretic peptides beyond the cardiovascular system. The authors discuss that better understanding of the mechanism by which natriuretic peptide elevation occurs needs to be understood This is because an elevation in natriuretic peptide levels does not always reflect congestion. In chronic stable disease, an elevation in natriuretic peptide levels are more consistent with transmural wall stress, and improvement in natriuretic peptide levels in patients with chronic heart failure in the absence of congestion is thought to be a result of cardiac remodeling. In terms of implications for therapeutic approaches, the authors suggest that the Elusive development of an algorithmic approach to patients using biomarkers in an outpatient setting uh, should be further investigated. And they also ponder how other biomarkers may be combined with the use of natriuretic peptides to help further with diagnosis and prognosis in patients with heart failure. And finally, there should be an effort to understand the role of natriuretic peptides beyond the cardiovascular system. Natriuretic peptides affect multiple organs via the cyclic GMP protein kinase G signaling pathway. And basic research has shown that natriuretic peptides are involved in the immune response, lipid metabolism, and body temperature. Understanding their roles in these body systems, as well as others, requires additional investigation. Well, again, thank you for joining me for Heart Failure Rounds. I hope you enjoyed the review of this scientific statement on natriuretic peptides. This month on the Heart Failure Beat, we are jumping into the topic of equity in uh, regard to heart transplantation and the care of patients with advanced heart failure. Uh, We're very lucky to have a very special guest with us today, uh, whom I'm going to take a moment to introduce uh, right now. So welcome, Dr. Nazreen Ibrahim. Dr. Ibrahim is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist and one of the Commonwealth Fund Fellows in Minority Health Policy at Harvard University. She is a Master of Public Health and Health Policy 2023 candidate at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She is the founder and executive director of the nonprofit, 
the Equity and Heart Transplant Project. Uh, Dr. Ibrahim is published in top-tier journals, is a book author. Their book was called Spark Plug, uh, and is an associate editor for the Journal of uh, the American College of Cardiology Heart Failure. Uh, her research interests include improving adherence to guideline-directed medical therapies and heart failure, understanding the mechanisms of disparities in care, and improving access to heart transplantation in historically excluded and systematically oppressed patient populations. Uh, in 2021, Dr. Ibrahim was invited by the White House Office of Public Engagement to participate in a Health Equity Leaders Roundtable series focused on access to care. So, Dr. Ibrahim uh, Nazreen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I know Pri and I are both really excited about this conversation and uh, grateful for you uh, agreeing to join us. Thank you so much for having me. You know this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart, so I'm really excited to be here tonight. Yeah, yeah, we're really excited too. So in general, I, I want to take our listeners back to a few months ago uh, on our Heart Failure Round segment. I reviewed a series of articles that talked about inequity in heart transplant and the treatment of patients with advanced heart failure. You know, it's something that is, I think, on the minds of a lot of people in our community. Uh, we realize that there are inequities that exist and there's, you know, a lot of uh, barriers that prevent us from providing the care that we'd like to uh, provide for our patients. And, you know, as somebody who's developing an expertise in this field, starting off, would you mind just summarizing how you see the big picture of how the care uh, in regard to patients with advanced heart failure and, and maybe more specifically those that need therapies like transplant LVAD, how accessing those things might be, might be affected by the uh, inequities that exist in our society? So great question. And I always like to remind people that, you know, there's so many levels that contribute to these inequities, everything from uh, federal and state level policies all the way down to how an institution decides who's going to receive that and transplant. And so every level, there's some sort of inequity that makes a difference in who has access to that and transplant. I like to use the example, I don't like to pick on Georgia, but I like to use the example of, for example, of state policy. So in Georgia, Medicaid does not cover heart transplant. So if you are above the age of 21 and you are on Medicaid in Georgia, heart transplant isn't covered, but other organs are covered like liver transplant, kidney transplant for unclear reasons. Of course, a lot of these decisions are based on money, right? So heart transplant is expensive. And so you know um, who's going to be most affected by that policy in Georgia. It's going to be black and, and brown patients and patients of low income. So that's an example of how a state-level policy contributes to these inequities. And then if you look at center policy, so if you're a center that says, okay, after we implant a VAD or a transplant in somebody, we want them to live within a certain mile radius of our institution, so you're asking somebody that may already be paying a mortgage or rent somewhere else to move closer to your institution for anywhere from three to six months. And so you as an institution are also contributing to these inequities because not everyone can afford to pay rent in two places or mortgage and a rent now and move their family or their caregiver. So policies at every level contribute to inequities. And I also like to think about, we don't always think about upstream. So where are these patients seen? So patients that have the worst outcomes related to heart failure, if they're seen in institutions that don't have transplant centers. So who is it that decides 
who is, for lack of a better word, worthy enough to even be sent for evaluation for advanced therapy. So we don't see a lot of the patients. Sometimes we see them too late. They get sent to us and now they're too sick to be considered for transplant. So that every level in this process, there's opportunity for inequities, including, as you are well aware, what we talk about in those closed-door black box selection meetings about how we decide who is quote-unquote eligible for these advanced therapies. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so many different areas where inequity exists in the process, and you're right. And the, but, you know, looking at it from a brighter side, maybe that means there's so many ways that we can make a positive change by trying to uh, positively impact these areas. Which, uh, to, to take into our second question uh, here, is that, you know, one of the things that you've done, and I mentioned in the uh, introduction, is that you know, you have really taken this upon yourself to make make a positive change in this area and have founded a nonprofit called the Equity and Heart Transplant Project. You know, I'd really just want to give you some time to talk about, you know, why you decided to do this and what your goals are for the project and, and where you see things going forward with the work that you're doing in this space. So thank you. This is my baby. I have been thinking about this nonprofit for years, um, ever since I was a fellow. And the reason was born from just seeing real examples of patients that are struggling to make ends meet and and have advanced heart failure. And when we do these evaluations, there's something I read in one of, there was a paper, a perspective piece written in health affairs talking called, and they called it a wallet biopsy. So finances play a big role in how we determine candidacy for these advanced therapies. And just for the listeners, you know, why does money matter? So, you know, for transplant, for example, there's, you know, co-payments for medications that you need after transplant, or like the example that I use for housing, if we're asking somebody to move to be closer to the transplant center, again, finances play a role. Or even I always use the example of a patient that needed several teeth pulled before becoming a quote unquote candidate for heart transplant. And the dentist had quoted them over $6,000 to get their teeth pulled. And so finances played a big role. And throughout, you know, my training and my early years as a faculty, you know, as a heart failure and transplant faculty member, just thinking of the stories that had sort of traumatized me and being so naive to think, how is it that in the United States of America, we're letting patients die or not have access to this this amazing therapy based on a few thousand dollars. And so that's why the idea was born. And then last year, February 2022, um, my childhood best friend uh, died suddenly. And I was like, I cannot wait any longer to found this nonprofit. I have been reading about nonprofits. I have been thinking about this for a long time. And so her death is what ultimately pushed me to say, let's just do this. And I met with an attorney and we established a nonprofit. We got our 501c3 status as a public charity in May. And the goal of the nonprofit is, you know, I I like to always tell people, yes, we are a Band-Aid solution because there's so many systemic issues that need to be addressed for this, for us to not need to exist, but we are a Band-Aid solution until we can fix these systemic problems. But what we do is we provide financial assistance to patients that medically qualify for transplant, but they are just missing that financial piece. So we take applications from somebody on the care team, whether it's a social worker or finance person on the care team or a physician or a clinician anywhere in the United States. So these are patients that, again, medically qualify for transplant. The transplant team had determined that they're a good candidate, but they need 
money for housing or they need money for uh, to pay the co-payments on the medications. Or again, for the example about somebody needing to get their teeth pulled and not having $6,000 lying around to get their teeth pulled. So we write grants to help these patients become better candidates. And we hope that the transplant center has determined that just with this amount of money that the patient's going to be successful after transplant, because we are stewards in the system. You know, the gift of donation is incredible, but we want to make sure that we're giving it to a patient that has the resources they need to be successful. And so far, our nonprofit has helped um, seven patients with the grants that we have written. We started writing grants in September and we're a grassroots. I like to say we're a startup. We're learning as we go, but, you know, if we can help patients become better candidates, then we're going to keep doing this work. It's fantastic. Nazreen, that's absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. And really, I think putting into perspective um, the scope of the problem and really how multifactorial it is. It's in everything. It's in our environment, everything from, from government to our own institutions to maybe our own implicit biases and you know, congratulations on the birth of your your nonprofit, and really, it's a, it's an amazing and inspiring story. Thank you for all that you do and all your organization does. And I had a question for you on some things that we can do as partnership, as a community to to help. When we and those black boxes, as you mentioned, are pretty ubiquitous amongst all of our institutions. The selection, the dreaded selection com- committee, and in that committee comes up these terms of modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors that go into "quote unquote" eligibility, transplant candidacy eligibility. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind defining some of those modifiable risk factors that maybe are disproportionately weighted or weighted in, in, a, in a skewed way for certain populations. And if you wouldn't mind expanding on that term, and the reason I want to highlight that is to, to try to, to understand how healthcare systems and, and hospitals can, can help or change their approach. And the first thing to do is admit you have a problem and identify there's a problem. So if you could maybe help us to, to get a little bit of a clarity on that. Absolutely. So just easily, the the non-modifiable risk factors is something like age. So if your center has a cutoff of 65, that we're not going to transplant anybody above the age of 65, that's, you know, it's non-modifiable. Whether the patient is under 65, if they're over 65, then they're not a candidate at your institution. So non-modifiable is easy, and that's not where the gray zones are. I feel like where the gray zones are and where the opportunity to really make a difference are in these modifiable risk factors. And one easy example would be BMI. So some institutions have a BMI cutoff of 35, some have a BMI cutoff of 40. And what happens is we say, okay, the patient's not a candidate until they get below whatever our BMI cutoff is. But are you providing the resources for a patient that can barely breathe climbing two flights of stairs or climbing two stairs? Are you providing them the resources they need to lose that weight, whether it's health coaching, whether it's a referral for bariatric surgery, or whether it's creating a program to help them lose the weight? So that's an example of something that's modifiable instead of saying, you know, the patient is not a candidate and moving on to the next patient that you're presenting to the committee. Um, Substance use disorders, I feel strongly about this. Again, we don't want people to continue smoking after they receive the heart because we want to make sure that they're protecting the heart. But 
again, are you providing the resources, whether it's, um, you know, tobacco or whether it's other substance use disorders that you want the patient to manage? Are you providing them resources they need so that now they become eligible for transplant? And then things like marijuana use, you know, some people live in a state where it is legal. Oh, have you defined, okay, smoking, we know it interferes with levels of some of the medications, but what about other types of uh, marijuana or THC products? Again, sometimes the rules and the regulations and, you know, what a center considers a contraindication is not clear. And then I would say housing is a modifiable risk factor. I've heard of institutions that have partnered with home, you know, shelters. And so after a patient is transplanted or receives a VAD, they have a bed held at a shelter in order for them to have stable housing. I don't think that's the best solution, but I do think if we wanted to, we could do better in terms of creating the resources or finding the resources for patients that have these modifiable risk factors to make them better candidates. But again, I'm not going to be naive here and say this is easy to do. We're stretched thin. Um, The system is already bursting at the seams. But we should care to get these patients to where they need to be in order to become candidates for transplant. No, that's uh, absolutely right. I think, you know, it's it's hard to impress. It seems like it's such a no-brainer. We care because it's the right thing to do, and because it's the right thing to do, that's what we should do. And you speak a lot about allyship, and, you know, I think we all want to be good allies, and, and sometimes the devil is in the details, and how do meaningful allyship, right? And how do you make meaningful change? And you're absolutely right that, you know, resources are, are stretched thin. Do you have some examples or blueprints or resources where folks are can look to and say, you know, I have a program, this is my geographic area. These are the places I would look to to partner for resources, whether it's, you know, local government, nonprofit organizations, yours and others. Do you have anything for the community or centers that might want to model this in a way, uh, but just maybe need a little help or a roadmap forward? So one center that has done this really, really well is the African-American Transplant Access Program. I think that's what it's called. It's at Northwestern. Dr. Denise Simpson um, runs it at Northwestern. And it's sort of, I think of it like a transplant boot camp. It addresses these modifiable risk factors, has lots of resources to get Black patients to kidney transplant. So this is for kidney transplant. But I'd like to, you know, take it into, into say, for heart transplant. I think if centers wanted to create these access programs, um, you can think of creative ways. So the example I gave about a patient being quoted over $6,000 to get their teeth pulled. What about partnering with local dental schools and saying, so, you know, if I have patients that come up in the committee review and, you know, they're having these challenges with finding, getting their dental work done at a reasonable rate, what if we partner with dental schools and we, you know, Again, these are dental students and there's controversy there about saying sending people to trainees. But what if they're supervised by their attending faculty and they're going to get their teeth done? And so now they're candidates for transplant. It's not costing $6,000 for them to be a better candidate for transplant. So I think creating partnerships or even people that do health coaching and behavioral coaching. I, I think we don't do enough behavioral modification training in a lot of patients that have substance use disorder or, you know, 
patients that are overweight or above our BMI cutoff for transplant. So can you partner with nonprofits to create this sort of, even if it's like a virtual access program? So I think it can be done. You just need the resources, the motivation. And you also, at the end of the day, the hospitals look at this as a business. So you have to have you know, you have to show them that this is at the end of the day going to be financially beneficial for the institution to get these patients to transplant. One follow-up question that I had, again, goes back to um, the selection committee process. You know, we're, we're using this term equity, and uh, equity is not the same as equality. And uh, at least the way I understand it, and I, maybe I have a, a simple view and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you know, we, we exist in a society where there's significant inequity and inequalities. And if we want to provide equitable opportunity, which I do think is in the mission statement of, of UNOS, uh, equitable access to, to donor organs, you know, what that means is that we should be going above and beyond for those that have less fortunate, those that have less opportunity, and those that may be in situations where they don't necessarily meet the quote unquote criteria for to become listed for uh, an advanced therapy. And so much probably, and I'm making an assumption because I haven't worked you know, in every single program in the country, but I'm guessing it's not dissimilar in different places. But the committee meetings that we sit in, we're always looking for reasons to say, well, this person's not going to meet the criteria for us to be able to take care of them. Where, you know, when we're looking at patients that come from disadvantaged backgrounds and whether that be, you know, disadvantaged backgrounds according to race, according to ethnicity, according to nation of origin, according to religion, according to gender, according to, you know, body mass index, like you mentioned, there's so many different ways that we are having some implicit bias and prejudice towards groups of people that could put them in situations in our society where they thereby are in, with no fault of their own, more likely to develop some of the habits or be in situations that then when we review them in committee, we say, okay, this person's not going to make the cut for us. But again, if we're trying to reach a point where we can provide equitable access to organs, it seems like we need to go above and beyond for these people and not necessarily just meet the status quo for everybody. Somebody who's passionate about this, I kind of just want to hear what your thoughts are in regards to that and you know, what can we do to truly be equitable and allowing access to organs for patients that need heart transplant? And I, I like that you bring up the committee meetings because, again, it is a black box and there's gatekeeping that happens at every level from, you know, who decides this patient is worthy enough to even be sent for evaluation. But the final gate is that selection committee meeting. And I think so much can be done to improve how we run these meetings. And I know Dr. Khadija Brethet at Indiana University and others are studying this, but as you are well aware, and I've been at several institutions myself, is, you know, these patients are presented from head to toe. We literally end up knowing every single thing about them. And the medical decision is easy. It's, you know, they're sick enough to get transplanted or they're too sick that we, we don't think they're going to survive the operation for whatever reason. So no, they're not candidates, but it's with these psychosocial evaluations that so many things come up during the evaluation, like you said, that even one word or one thing said incorrectly that may not necessarily have anything to do with how they're going to do post-transplant. These things that are brought up in the meeting that might really just kill their chances of becoming a candidate and change the opinions of everybody on the committee. I think who sits in on those meetings is incredibly important. And I don't just mean by you know race and ethnicity, although that's incredibly important, but it also means 
what neighborhood did you grow in? What kind of uh, patients have you seen in the past? People that have had not the greatest social circumstances growing up or patients that are not from you know, the fanciest neighborhoods in the cities we live in. So how, what have your life experiences been? What have your experiences been as a professional taking care of patients with quote unquote challenges that we consider for transplant? And that is our duty as physicians. And that is why, at least me, I went into heart transplant to make sure that everybody, no matter if you're the CEO at a Fortune 500 company or you're, you know, a third shift environmental services person with two children and you're in a one parent household, how do we go to bat for you to make sure that you have the resources to succeed to first to pass all these rules that we have on our list to make you a transplant candidate? But how do we provide you the resources to make sure you're successful afterwards? And I just think making sure that everybody in the room is on the same page, that you have diverse voices in the room by experience, by expertise, by race, by ethnicity. And to remember that that's our duty. That's why we went into this space. And that's my motivation for my nonprofit. And I hope in the future that my nonprofit grows enough that we can help patients with other organ needs, you know, kidney, liver, whoever else, because these Problems and issues are not unique to um, just heart transplant, and there's so much literature on it in kidney transplant as well. But I like to say the the meetings are a black box and can be done so differently. And I think the way we present patients should be done in a respectful uh, manner, the, the same way you'd like yourself or a member of your family to be presented. You want to present patients in a way that doesn't bias the people sitting in the room. But you also, like I said, we're stewards to these organ donors. We want to make sure that uh, they're going to live for years and years or decades after they receive the organ. But I'd like to hear what you think as well, Dr. Beasley, about these meetings. I think I'm on the same page as you are in that as a steward of the donor organ, uh, we need to make sure that the, the recipient is prepared to take exquisite care of that organ. Um, I guess, you know, where I'm coming from is... Uh, in situations where we have uh, patients that, you know, they might not have every every um, every opportunity uh, available to make sure that they have a stable home life or stable uh, employment, education, and things like this that have then led to them maybe having some uh, issues that we find to be unfavorable for uh, giving them an organ, not not to write them off right away, work with them, like you're saying. And I think, and that's why I really think that, you know, learning about your nonprofit and the work that you're doing, and I think is going to be, is really incredible because I think that can really help bridge the gap for some of those people to help them overcome those those things that, you know, that deck of cards or whatever the, fr- the phrase is. I'm always, I'm always really bad at these types of sayings. I can never remember exactly how they go. But anyway, what you were dealt, you know, we're not all dealt the same thing. And just because you're dealt a bad hand uh, doesn't mean that, you know, we shouldn't work to try to still help you out. And I think your nonprofit is you know, got that, that's where its heart is. And, and, I, and I really congratulate you and, and, uh, and I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you. It takes work at so many levels. I know I'm just a Band-Aid solution, but at least we're getting people um, to listen and to understand that poverty should not be a contraindication to transplant, and we're working to fix that. Yeah. 
Well, uh, you know, as we come to the end of our conversation here with Dr. Ibrahim, again, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, it's a huge topic, and it's probably a topic that, you know, we're going to struggle with throughout the majority of our career, unfortunately. But, you know, it's great to have uh, people like yourself working and trying to make this a, a better situation for so many patients. Welcome to From Failure to Function, the month of March brought many new studies for heart failure between the American College of Cardiology Scientific Sessions and the Technology and Heart Failure Therapeutics Conference. One that I'd especially like to highlight was the left atrial decoring sinus shunting for treatment of symptomatic heart failure trial that was presented at the meeting. The ALT-FLOW trial was an ALT-FLOW early feasibility study, which was designed to evaluate the safety of the Edwards left atrial decoring sinus APTURE transcatheter shunt system in patients with symptomatic heart failure. 18 centers enrolled patients with symptomatic heart failure with a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure that was greater than 15 at rest or 25 millimeters of mercury or more during exercise. 87 patients underwent attempted APTURE shunt implantation. The mean age of the patient cohort was 71 years and 53% were male. The baseline left ventricular ejection fraction was 59% with 90% of the patients being New York Heart Association Class 3. Device success was achieved in 78 or 90% of the patients enrolled, with no device occlusions or associated adverse events identified after implantation. The primary safety outcome occurred in 2.3% of patients, or two patients in total at 30 days. Health status was evaluated at six months, and 68% of patients achieved New York Heart Association Class 1 to 2 status with a 23-point improvement in the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire overall summary score. Also at six months, 20-watt exercise pulmonary capillary wedge pressure measurements were 7 millimeters lower than at enrollment without a change in right atrial pressure or other right heart function indices. On behalf of Michael and myself, we want to thank you for tuning into the Heart Failure Beat. We'll catch you next time with more exciting news and discussions from the world of heart failure. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the Heart Failure Society of America. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit hfsa.org hfbeat. Follow HFSA on Twitter and look for us at hashtag hfbeat. 